person I've ever met cares deeply about something. Whether it be women's rights, access to the voting booth, the freedom to believe in a God or the universe, even their child's education. And oftentimes when advocating for these causes, people find themselves depleted, full stop. Is it possible for us to create the world of our ideals from a place of lack? Well, what if we flip the script? What if we can shift our focus from what we don't want to what we do want? What if we can create the world we want from a place of joy and love instead? Finding the nuance in this shift is a lifetime practice, and that is what this podcast is here to discuss and investigate. My name is Lola Sofia Bovell, and I am the host of the Latina Advocate Podcast. Today's episode features Dr. Diana Cordova Cobo and Dr. Carlena Orozco. They are both extremely accomplished and brilliant Latina women that I am lucky enough to call friends and even sisters. Diana is a first-generation Latina sociologist and education researcher that has spent the past decade focused on the experiences of Latinx communities with education, housing, segregation, and gentrification. Lena's research spans numerous content areas, including de-escalation in policing, police dispatchers, crime analysis, and law enforcement decision-making. In this episode, we discuss their experiences getting their doctorate degrees, why there are so few Latinas with PhDs, and why it's so important to increase that number and visibility in academia. We also discuss their research interests, how to get inclusive, equitable policies from cutting-edge publications to local classrooms, and even the school-to-prison pipeline. If you're interested in learning about what it takes to get a PhD, or even some of the important research emerging in K-12 education or policing, this episode is for you. Take a listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome to the Latina Advocate Podcast. I am so excited to introduce you to Lena and Diana. So I know them from different contexts completely, but maybe not so completely because they're actually both sisters of Lambda Theta Alpha, Latin Sorority Incorporated. They're these phenomenal women that have both gotten PhDs. And I don't know if either of you know the numbers, but I know the number of like Latinas that have a PhD is like infinitesimal. It's it's like so, so it's like tiny, 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 tiny. So I wanted to bring them both on because I want folks, I want you all as listeners to know that getting a PhD is super accessible. It is hard, hard work because these ladies, I've known them for a long time now. And it, you know, from the time that they started their PhDs to the time where they finished them, it's a large span of time there. So I know it's a lot of work. So we have Diana Cordova and we have Galena Orozco. So Diana, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll, we'll get going. Hello, 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 Lola. Thank you for having me on this podcast. And I'm excited to be in community with both you and Carlena and hear more about Carlena's story as well. Because as you mentioned, we are a small but mighty group of folks. Um, And so I am a recent PhD graduate from the Sociology and Education Program at Teachers College, Columbia University. Um, And my PhD is in Sociology and Education. So it's focused on education policy, education practice, but with a sociological discipline um, background. And I, um, but prior to that, I was a middle school teacher. And so I actually 
part of what drove me to P to pursue my PhD was my experience as a teacher. Um, so I, my master's degree is in social studies education, um, and I spent uh, several years teaching in the Washington Heights community of New York City as what? a history teacher. Nice. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> And um, I like that came out after I was a teacher, and I always like laugh because it's just like I could see all this. Anyways, that, besides the point, let me not go down the rabbit hole. But the, but I was a so seventh grade social studies teacher, right? And so I was somebody who loved to make my classroom a space where like my students could share their stories. Um, I was getting acclimated to New York City and like being somebody who lived in the city and all of these different things. And then opening up my classroom space to hear the stories of my students who were predominantly Latinx and predominantly Dominican in particular, um, I started to learn a lot about like what was going on in New York City in terms of education, in terms of housing, um, all of these different topics that were coming into my social studies classroom. And I started doing some research to help me teach, like to figure out how I could support my students in exploring these topics. And in doing that research, I really quickly became really frustrated um, with mm. the lack of research around um, how Latinx communities in particular were dealing with issues related to education and housing um, in large metropolitan areas, right? And so I was hearing my students talk about affordability issues. I was hearing them struggling with like practices and policies that were even happening in my school, but outside of my classroom, right? Teachers handing out detentions for like students speaking Spanish. Like there were so many things that were happening at the time that I was like, okay, like my frustration almost is what drove me to try to start looking into like getting a PhD and wanting to really infuse like these stories and all of these experiences that my students were sharing and that I was experiencing as a New York City resident um, into research, right, that I saw was absent there. And so I went into my PhD um, with both a passion for teaching and a passion for trying to expand the way we were talking about a lot of the issues in education and housing um, as it pertained to Latinx communities. And so spent the better part of the past decade doing research in that vein. Um, and I'll stop there for now, but that's kind of like why I decided to get my PhD. Um, and it's still like the, those stories that my students shared with me, those experiences still drive a lot of the work that I do today. And some of my kids are my kids. Now they're full blown adults. Um, some of them are like teachers themselves now and like whole humans. And we still get to keep in contact. And those stories still kind of drive my passion for the research that I do now. So. I love that so much, Diana. And, you know, it's it's interesting because I really I didn't realize how privileged we were at the University of Florida. I really thought that folks just understood things like privilege. Right. And, um, you know, inequality. And it was kind of, a you know, inequity and everyone kind of cared about it. I mean, I knew that not everyone cared about it. I mean, I was involved in student government and I had my exposure to those things. But it was just it was it was a different we were still protected. Right. And and when I even came to Arizona, Lana, I, mean, I don't know if maybe you can speak to this, maybe, you know, because I know you've been in Arizona for some time or you were. But, you know, Mexican American studies, Mexican studies, you, you know, was banned in schools here in Arizona until recently. It was like, I mean, I don't even know the exact year, but it was a little over 10 years ago. To me, these things are just ridiculous. Get a detention slip because you're speaking Spanish. 
that is just so racist and problematic. I can't even begin. So yeah, it's it's interesting. And that's New York. You would think New York is different as well. Anyways, we could talk about that for a while, but just super, super interesting and also troubling, but that's why we're the change. So Lena, would love to hear about all the work you're doing. I know the work you're doing is so, so important as well. So my journey is also very interesting. And I'm um, Dana, thank you for sharing. Incredible. Um, and the work you're doing is just so impressive. So thank you. Uh, I too was a practitioner before an academic. Um, it's really funny. I tell this story and people think I'm joking, but I'm not. I was 11 years old and I saw the signs of the lambs. And I was like, how can I be like Clarice? <laughs> I was like, how can I be like her? Brilliant, strong, confident, facing challenges. I was like, that's who I want to be. So, you know, being a latchkey kid of the 90s, my mom took me to the public library every weekend. I checked out every book on how to become a profiler, how to study these different things. And I realized fairly quickly that there were about 10 people in the world that had that job. So maybe I should think about some alternatives. <laughs> so I actually started um, my journey academically to be a forensic chemist. And so I started there. I went through, obtained my uh, credential to analyze fingerprints through the FBI. I also went through crime scene photography. I did everything. Um, my first job was as a fingerprint tech. So it was a very different journey. Uh, then I interned for the medical examiner and I lasted one week. Uh, and I was like, yeah, no, no. Um, I, as my, my dear line sister knows here, um, I'm very sensitive. And so I knew I wasn't able to desensitize myself from kind of what was happening and victims and things. And I just couldn't do it. So that's kind of how that started and how I quickly detoured into a research kind of path. Uh, so as an undergraduate, I studied criminal justice. I knew I wanted to stick with that trajectory. Didn't really know what I wanted to do at that point, but I met a professor who was the only woman of color in my criminal justice program as a professor, uh, Latina, who I went to her class and I was terrified. She was tough and also incredibly impressed with her confidence, her work. And I went up to her and said, do you have any research that I can do? Is there anything I can help you with? And from then on, she became my mentor and still is to this day. So she took me under her wing. We did research together. She took me into the community. We met stakeholders and this continued. Uh, she really elevated my strengths. She challenged me tremendously. And at that point I thought, you know, I was working as a dispatcher simultaneously. I worked graveyards and weekends. So basically um, I was working, you know, as a dispatcher um, in Los Angeles, weekends, graveyards the entire time. I went to school during the week and I did that through my undergrad and my master's program. And I did research. I did everything during the week as well. But the dispatch part of it really kind of opened my eyes to the decision-making and discretionary power that we have in policing from the dispatch 911 call all the way down to arrest powers. And so I thought to myself, here I am at 22 and I have so much discretion at my fingertips. This is fascinating to me. And my love for research kind of elevated and propelled and kind of continued from there. I wanted to be a crime analyst, which is kind of like an in-house researcher for police departments. So I went through that. Sorry for the dog barking in the background. Um, and I went through the training and as a master's student, my mentor said, have you thought about doing a PhD? And I was like, absolutely not. You know, um, I want to have, I want to have a life. There's no way. And she said, you can do this. She's like, I know it's intimidating. I know maybe you don't see others who look like you that are PhDs, but you can do this. And I applied and there it went. 
And so my research is largely centered on policing. Uh, specifically, I look at decision-making and discretion. I do that from the dispatch level to the officer level and beyond. Uh, I also look at um, the use of technology, crime analysis, and primarily I focus on studying dispatchers and their role. They're largely neglected in scholarship because they're not sworn, they're not the face of policing. We hear them, we don't see them, but their decision-making power is incredibly important. And so that's kind of the area that I'm trying to carve out a space in. It's difficult when there's no research on the topic, but also very exciting to kind of pave the way for that area of scholarship. I'm also very big on being uh, community-centered in criminal justice. Um, that's being inclusive, that's being, you know, very much a partner with the community, not just saying, hey, community, this is what we're doing, but saying, hey, community, what are your thoughts? What would be better? What are your feelings? What can we do better? Uh, that's also providing access to data and making it transparent, making sure that we're including the community at every step of the way. So that's more of the work I do as well. Uh, and basically just trying to make policing better uh, in the sense that we need more evidence-based practice. We need to do more evaluations of policing practice to determine if they're effective or if they're harmful and ways that we can better protect the community, but also um, not create practices that are incredibly harmful and punitive and lead to really deleterious outcomes as well. Uh, so that's kind of where I am at this point. And I'm currently um, an assistant professor. It's my, I just graduated in May as well. So it's my first position that I've had outside of working in government agencies, uh, but really a wonderful opportunity to be that representation for my students that I did not have. So I have like so many questions <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I feel like I, again, you know, I, and I mentioned this to you all offline, but I feel like I could do documentaries with the both of you. It's just fascinating. There's just so much, uh, so much depth to the work that you both do. Thank you for your willingness to to get into that line of work, Lena, because policing right now is extremely loaded. Mm-hmm. And when we stop looking at things at a Twitter level and we actually kind of dive deep, because I know there's this, there's always this, I, I feel like tension between more of the revolutionary and then more of the person that's uh, more of a system person, right? And so the revolutionary would be like the police system needs to just go, period. It's, it just doesn't work. And then there's more of the system person that's like, okay, well, this is the reality of what we have right now. How can we make it better, right? And so difficult space to occupy. I totally and very interesting. And a, you know, a lot of the feedback I get when I tell people what I do is not very kind, but you know, it's it is what I do, and I'm very passionate about it. And you know, if we think about Latinas as PhDs and how small that number is. Latinas who study policing, even smaller. And so it's non-existent. Very, it's very important to me to do this work and bring a different lens to the work that I do. Uh, and that's why I'm so incredibly passionate about it, even though at times it is a very challenging space to occupy. Yeah, I can only imagine. All right. So taking a step back. So for folks that are listening that are maybe considering getting their PhDs, I have also many times dabbled with getting my PhD as well. Uh, I do remember you're like, you should. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I'll be 50 when I graduate. Thanks. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But uh, one of the things that I remember when I got my master's degree in women's studies is how important it was to have professors of color there that actually validated the work that you wanted to do. 
right? And so I'll give a, a shout out to Dr. Stephanie Evans. She was my, yes. Yes, yes, yes. She wrote one of my recommendation letters for my PhD program. She just, did. I mean, it just did. sounds like her. She's just so yeah. incredible. She's the one that introduced me to women's studies in the first place and was like, girl, you should get your master's degree. And I remember when I told her, I was like, I want to go to law school. She was like, really? <laughs> Are you sure you want to do that? And now I'm like, I should have listened to you, but it's okay. You know, it's all, it's all important work. You know, some are more practice-based, some are more academic. Anyway, I do remember how important it was to have that person. She is a, a big reason why I continued whether it was more academic or, you know, more of a, a practice-based location. So I would love to hear from you both about what your experience was like getting your PhDs. So it was, it was quite some time. I, you know, if you could also share that too, like how long did it take you from when you started your program to when you actually graduated, you know, taking the courses, which, you know, obviously are challenging, but I feel like the most challenging part, and you all can tell me because you all have done it, is the dissertation itself, because there's no one really on you that's like, I mean, your, your committee chair is going to be on you, right? They're going to be, and even, let me just take a step back too. So typically when you're getting some form of a thesis or a dissertation, you have a committee. So those are essentially advisors and they're there to guide you and help you and critique you as you get to the point where you're actually ready to show your work. And at that point, you do what's called a defense. And at that point, if you know you pass, then you're you're allowed to move forward and actually get that that degree. But in terms of those committee chairs, in terms of getting getting the dissertation, it it just seems like that part is the hardest part because they'll they'll help you here and there, but they have their own things going on, right? So you have to really be independent. You have to be disciplined because there are so many people that out, out there that are ABD which means basically they did all the coursework, but they didn't actually get the dissertation, right? So if you could tell us a little bit about that experience and then also how you got through it. So I don't know who wants to start. Either I'll one. start because my journey, I want to, you know, I'm all about being transparent about my challenges that I faced during mine. So, um, and I also think it's important for people to recognize that it's not a linear process. Uh, life happens. So I started my doctorate uh, actually right out of my master's program. I went into a program that I'll say uh, was not a, an ideal fit for me initially. And I had, um, I was in a very uh, problematic relationship. I was far from my family and all these variables combined kind of led to a decision for my own benefit and my own health to leave a program initially. And I did that and I was terrified. I thought, am I throwing away my dream? Am I never going to be able to accomplish this because I need to take care of myself. And so I did that and I took a year or two off to kind of reassess what I wanted to do. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to let that situation take that dream for me. So I buckled up and I, I informally spoke to another program that I knew was a program that was very reputable. It was actually my, my program, Arizona state number two in the nation for what I study for PhDs very rigorous research. And I knew it was going to be tough, but I kind of went to them and said, this is my situation. I left on good terms, but I want this degree. And I basically took classes without being fully admitted to show that I was a straight A student and I could work hard. And then I started as a PhD student at Arizona State, having come from that challenge and having that little kind of gap between, Mm -hmm. Um, but I did it and I was unafraid and you have to be, there will be rejection inevitably there's going to be programs that say, no, we don't want you. And you have all the credentials and whatever reason they decide that you don't, you're not a good fit. It's okay. Trust the process. But I will say that 
you know, the coursework for me was not the, tr- the challenging part. The hard part was when it was all on me and that's the dissertation, you're collecting your data, you're self-starting, you're yeah. managing your time, all of this. And so, you know, I had an exceptional mentor who pushed me, but was also flexible because I worked full-time through my entire PhD. Uh, I was advised not to do that, but I'm stubborn and I did it anyway uh, because I wanted to be a practitioner and a scholar and I didn't want to lose those connections. They were incredibly critical to my understanding of topics that I was studying. I wanted those opportunities to work with stakeholders. So I said, I understand your concerns, but let me do what I need to do. And I got it done. And I graduated early, in fact, because I was able to just kind of be strategic about my time and focus. Could we just like, I'm going to take like just a pause there and ask you, what did that look like? Because, you know, I I don't think people realize the time that 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 took. So you're talking 40 hours a week at minimum and maybe sometimes over that. Right. And then also taking a course load. Mm -hmm. So could you just describe that for folks so they can get an understanding of how much that was? I was actually supervising my crime analysis unit at a police department for half of my PhD. So I was working about 50 hours a week. And I was working every night. I'd come home, I'd give myself an hour break to kind of play with my dog, have dinner. And then I was working on coursework every night or my dissertation, whatever the case. My weekends, working um, in the lab, in the library, whatever I could do, because uh, I had to be very strategic about my time to the point where for the last several years, and it's still in practice because I'm used to it, every hour my calendar is accounted for wake up, have breakfast, do this, study this, write this section, et cetera. Uh, I had to be very disciplined and it was very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, at times I sacrificed my own wellness and I, that's a regret that I have, but it's because I didn't give myself enough time. I think because I felt as though if I let off the gas, I wouldn't be successful. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. You need to give yourself those breaks. Right. It was very hard. It was very, very difficult. One of the most challenging experiences of my life. Um, it took a lot of, a lot of discipline and a flexible mentor who was like, Hey, I know you worked 60 hours this week. What we're working on can wait, take the weekend if you need to. Oh, that's great. And that's what I needed to get through this without him. I don't think I would have been as successful. This is my other mentor in my PhD, but the biggest lesson is yes, be disciplined, be strategic with your time, stay focused, but ultimately if you don't take care of yourself, none of that matters. And so mm-hmm. That would be my biggest lesson for folks. You can do it. You're brilliant. You can absolutely do it, but you have to take care of yourself too. Yeah. Well, Diana, what was your experience like? Yeah. So mine was a bit long. Um, and part of that had to do with the fact that I had all three of my kids while I was a PhD student. And so I actually got, so I was in New York City. I was really big on staying connected to the communities that I was already working for um, in New York City. And so I only applied to like a handful of programs. And when I got my acceptance letters, right, I had, so one thing about me is that I had no clue what a PhD looked like going in. I didn't know anybody who had a PhD. I didn't have anybody to talk to who could tell me what a PhD was. Like my professors from undergrad were supportive, but I had been so removed by that point that I just was not, I had no clue what I was getting myself into. And on top of that, I stepped into an R1, right? Columbia University. And so I got my acceptance letters in like early, what, like March, you start basically, uh, the way it worked for me was that you start getting like 
informal emails before you get the actual acceptance letter where department chairs or whoever is reaching out to you like, hey, we have a spot for you, like these different things. You start negotiating like your funding, all of these different components of it. And then I found out I was pregnant maybe like a couple weeks after I got that acceptance letter. And I didn't know much about academia, but I knew that it was largely not parent friendly. Um, and so I I'd actually- the least. Yeah. I'm like, I knew that much. Um, and so <laughs> I remember going to my advisor at the time, who would be my advisor. Um, and I remember being terrified and being like, I am pregnant. I am going to, and I fully expected- them to like cringe back. And she was like, no worries. She's like, I love kids. We can put like a bassinet up in our like meeting room if you need to bring the baby to campus. And that was like the thing that I think actually like made it possible for me to like one, accept, right? But two, actually make it through the program. And that's not to say that it wasn't without challenges. So I started in 2014. Um, I just graduated, right? Um, like Carlena, we were also dissertating through a pandemic, which is not mm-hmm. to be underestimated. And so we took the way my program was structured was that it was three years of coursework. And it's really important. One thing I did some organizing while I was a student at Teachers College. And one of the things that we often talked about was that it, we always had like, at least in my department, we always had like a lot of like social and emotional support, right? Like our faculty in my specific department, this was always very supportive of parents who were students of like, you know, those different components that came in, but we didn't necessarily have the resource support, right? The type of funding that we needed, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like childcare, like subsidy, like all of these different things that the resource, the actual like material and like financial resources we needed. Um, a lot of people don't realize that when you get your PhD, like hopefully you're getting all your tuition and all that paid for, but you're not always, you're not getting a full-time salary. Like your stipend, average stipend in New York city for PhD programs is like $20,000 a year. Like what rent are you paying in New York city on $20,000 a year? Yeah, um, eat too. I'm like, and then forget like medical insurance, all these other components. Right. And so that often is what makes it more challenging for people to finish. So like my program was three years of classes. So I did my three years um, and then it came time for the dissertation and the dissertation itself took me about four years to complete. And that was because I had to stop to work full time. I had two more kids, you know, like I had to pay for childcare if I wanted to work on my dissertation. At one point, I just like, at one point, like put my hands up and I was like, am I actually going to finish this thing? Yeah. Um, should I just, should I just take my, cause I, at some point, at least the way it worked in my program is like, I already had my MPhil. Like I basically had a second master's right before you, on your way to your PhD, you get another master's. Um, <laughs> And it was just like lovely. Um, and so I, I remember not even fully like getting that. And so I got like a random degree in the mail and I was like, oh, great. Oh, right. yeah. well, cool. Um, and so I like, do I take that, go off and become like a research associate somewhere or do I actually finish this thing? And then the pandemic hit and I was like, okay, we're going to finish this thing. And it was um, a journey because my, so my dissertation focused on 
the school and neighborhood choices of Latinx parents in the New York City metro area amid gentrification. So I like I know Carlena was talking about like the importance of community. So I come from a critical race theory background. Um, I come from critical methodologies background, participatory research, and I'm always interested in the storytelling, right? Like how you make that work in a world that's obsessed with like the quick and dirty statistic. And so I was doing interviews, right? I had all of these plans to do like observations and like all these other qualitative methodologies. And like that all went away the second the pandemic happened because IRB shut down, like a lot of things stopped. And so I had to adjust. Thankfully, I was able to find parents who are willing to Zoom with me amid like pandemic chaos, amid parenting chaos on their end. And I made it work. But and I had a supportive committee. A lot of them were parents also. Um, And I intentionally one thing I sought out really early on that helped is that I intentionally sought out folks who understood my positionality within academia. Right. I was not somebody coming straight out of undergrad. I had a family at home. Um, I didn't have, you know, an infinite amount of resources where I could travel to every conference that I needed to travel to. And so I was able to surround myself pretty quickly with um, some mentors who understood that and encouraged it and always like reminded me that this was my journey and like not to compare myself to other people who were like whizzing out of the degree in like four or five years. And um, that was extremely helpful. Just having that like that emotional support, I think, was extremely helpful. And the rest took longer because you had to be realistic about like finances and other types of resources that you needed. But I think it is a long process. But one thing when I talked to, you know, once you get your PhD, you get a lot of students who want to like do their PhD who reach out to you <laughs> all the time. Mm-hmm. And one thing I think I always recommend that they do really early is like find that community, like find people who are not in it for the competition who are in it for the same reasons, because they're interested in telling the stories of themselves, their communities, the the folks that they care about, who they see are not represented, right? And who really like get where you're coming from and like are able to sustain you and like have those late night phone calls, have these like, you know, we'll submit panels with you and all these other things as you're trying to navigate this. And so it's not an easy process, but if you can set up your circle early on, I think it's really helpful to sustain you through it. It's also critical that, you know, your research may be really innovative or something that maybe hasn't been done. And I've heard horror stories of mentors or folks that people want to work with say, well, I don't study that. I don't know how I can help you do that. So, and then others who say, maybe I don't study that, but I can support you through connections or anything like that. I can support you by being there for you. If you need someone to edit or read something, you know, whatever the case, they don't have to be in your exact area of study to be supportive and integral to your journey. And I think that's the mentorship piece and finding your community. As you said, uh, I think, you know, academia we're slowly, but surely making changes, but it's very antiquated in terms of not only is it not family and parent friendly, it's not practitioner friendly, you know, working and, you know, if the classes are at 10 a.m. on a Thursday and I have a full-time job, how am I supposed to complete those courses and also right. work? And mm-hmm. so thinking about academia and, and kind of getting away from, well, I went through this, so you need to go through this. It's, it's not about that. This is about how can I empower these students to be scholars and leaders in this area 
and provide them the same opportunities. And, you know, that journey looks different for, for us as people of color in academia. It's very different from, you know, I decided to get a PhD, you know, and I have these resources and, and not to say that's everyone's journey, but we need to be mindful of that. And it's a very slow process to make those changes. We still see it a very antiquated approach to doctoral programs in some ways. That's something to be mindful of too. Not everyone's going to be as flexible. If you do have an advocate and a champion, they can say, well, maybe you don't need to take this class this semester, take this one instead in the psychology department and you'll still get that stats requirement done or something. Someone who can advocate for you and provide alternatives is is key as well. Yeah, it's amazing how much the like, how much your mentor can make or break your experience in a PhD program. I think a lot of people go for the school when they're applying to PhD programs, right? Like Mm -hmm. Columbia, like, you know, the more elite schools. And I've always like, look at the person, like, who do you want to work with? Like, do they have an active research agenda? Like talk to students who have been under them. Like what type, what has been their experience? Like what has been their advocacy for those students? Right. There's nobody, I'm on the East coast, right? Like I'm always slightly envious of West Coast folks and like Latinx studies and like the the amount of like classes and like that's that are available on the West Coast because <laughs> on the East Coast it's like it's like this small and so like on my I don't think I worked with a Latina in academia at all in a professional capacity in the entire trajectory of my PhD. We'll be right back after this brief message. Hey everyone, Lola here. I just wanted to pop in and let you know of an exciting free offer I have available for a limited time. Yes, I did say free. So I know there may be some of you that have a deep rooted fear of public speaking. And I get it. You're making yourself visible to a lot of people all at once. Yikes. But what if you had more tools on your tool belt to make it a little less scary? Well, you're in luck. I put together some of my best kept secrets to speaking in public on any stage, and I'm giving them away for free. All you have to do is go to our Instagram at the Latina Advocate Podcast and click the link in my bio. You'll see the link with must-have speaking tips right there. The path to going from okay speaker to exceptional speaker starts with a single first step. Black women mentors who were fantastic. I did not work. My particular, I took Latinx studies classes with Latina professors who were fantastic, but they weren't necessarily like, they weren't doing the type of research I was doing. When I worked in a housing center, I was the only Latina, Latinx person, period, at the table. Um, And that's often been my experience, like working in education policy and in various spaces um, and in research, education research in particular um, on the East Coast and where in New York City in particular. And so it is, for me, it was like, a puzzle, putting puzzle pieces together for like my dissertation committee. And like, I'm going to take you for Latinx studies. I'm going to take you for like gentrification studies. I'm going to take you for like housing and education intersection, like, and putting those pieces together. 
Um, and even then, a lot of my research centers on variation within Latinx communities. So I'm thinking about racial identity, skin color, like how all these things shape people's experiences. And even that concept, like, isn't necessarily widely accepted yet, even within Latinx studies. And so it becomes like this puzzle piece. So it's but the more people we get into the space, right, the more Latinas that go into higher education and academia, the more our experiences inform the type of research that we're doing, right? And the more that research becomes more nuanced based on that, right? I'm very much not of the like researchers are objective in any way, right? We all have subjective positions. We're all coming in with our positionality and that's what drives what we research and what we do um, in any field, right? That's that I, yes, I do like sociology, but that's true, I think, across the spectrum. And so um, I think that's like, that underscores the importance of having like a bigger presence within academia because you end up with more nuance that way and more opportunities for, for you to mentor like the next generation. I mean, all of our work is inherently reflexive. We're always looking at things through our lens and our experiences. And that's a good thing, you know, but as you said, yeah. it can't be necessarily objective. We have these experiences and these perspectives and uh, community is, is really, truly very important. And I agree with you about finding the mentor versus the, the school. You can go to an exceptional program and be miserable and not be nurtured or elevated or given opportunities. And you may get to go to a school that has a lower ranking, but it's nurturing and you feel it's like it's a safe space. You can do the work that you want to do and you have these opportunities and I would choose that in a second. So I think that's very, very important and a wonderful point that you raised. So I think you all have answered this. This is such a beautiful conversation. Diana, one of the things that stood out for me in particular that you said, you talked about like the racial aspects, the skin tones, you know, what, how that affects a person's experience generally in the school system, anywhere, and how that's not really reflected in, in Latinx studies. And it's just so, so important. And I have to say, you know, it's also motivating me to want to go and, and get a PhD. But again, I don't want to be 50 when it happens. But um, <laughs> but I think this is a perfect segue to the next thing I wanted to talk to you all about. So, you know, and Diana, you touched on it, too, because my I had a very similar experience. I mean, I had a Latina woman on my committee, but she was nowhere near as present and you know in terms of her understanding also of, of what I was studying as my mentor and as my committee chair Dr. Stephanie Evans and so I found that really my mentor and the person that really helped push me through in terms of my master's program uh, was an African-American woman how do we get more specifically Latinas in terms of getting their PhDs how do we increase those numbers at this point from what you have seen what do, what do we need to do to recruit more people so in my mind, this is a pipeline issue, right? Like when I think about education, right, it's a trajectory. And so when I'm thinking about the amount of people, the amount of Latinas that actually make it to graduate school, right? Like if you were to take a class of 100 Latina students, right? The numbers right now are that like only three of them make it all the way to graduate school, right? And that's just like graduate generally, like MA, like PhD, right. whatever, mm-hmm. Um And it's a broader issue, right? So like, if you want people to make it that far, you need to fix the leaky pipeline that leads up to it, right? And so in the education world, we really think intentionally, not everybody, but folks interested in like equity issues um, and racial equity, et cetera, right? We're thinking about like, the the idea of like opportunities, right? And opportunity gaps and as they exist at different stages of the education process, right? Because to get to the end, there's a certain number 
There's a certain type of skill set and experience you need to have had to even make it through the PhD gates. Um, and then there's the component of whether you think you can do it or not, right? And so like, I appreciate this podcast, for example, right? Part of your messaging here and being like, we exist, like this is possible, like you can do it. It's not to say that it's like a cakewalk, like it's not easy, but it is possible. And so I think part of it is like the actual like skills and knowledge and, and opportunities that it takes to even get Latinas to the position where they can apply to PhD programs and get accepted. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's also the actual like that, that socio-emotional component, like the identity and belonging piece of like, yes. do they even think they can do it and they can make it because they, they have examples of folks who have done it. Right. Like, like my daughter wants to be a NASA scientist. Like that's her thing. Um, Yes. And I like, I couldn't, like, I don't, like, I remember like Ellen Ochoa, right? Like, that's like the one that like everybody was taught. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just like scouring and in trying to help her see herself, like that this is a possibility. Like I have found so many like dope Latinas doing like, you know, doing work for NASA as like, astronautical engineers and like all these other types of you know astronomers and it's the possibility is there it's just like the exposure to it um and I think about how important that is for like being able to continue all right and then there's there's the system like at the same time that we're working to get to get Latinas through that pipeline successfully there's all the shit working against them in the system itself, right? Like, how are we fixing, sorry, <laughs> how are we fixing <laughs> the system so that it values them and so that we're creating spaces where there's the supports in place to ensure that they're successful once they're there, right? Because getting to the door is step one. Like actually finishing is a different question. Uh, the, the attrition rates are like another issue, right? A lot of people make it to grad school. A lot of Latinx folks make it to enroll in a bachelor's and then like less than like half of them finish. And so like, what is what is also happening at the system and organizational institutional level where we're creating policies and practices that actually support them, welcome them, value their perspectives, and then make sure that they're able to make it through. And so it's like multiple things have to happen <laughs> at once, you know? Yeah, Just literally could not have said it better, so I'm not going to try. Um, but I will say that I also think that, you know, we have to be mindful of the fact that yes, we need to think about data-driven practices, but data is just one aspect of things. We need to think about lived experience. We need to think about challenges. It's beyond just data and statistics. And you know what I mean? It's like, we have to humanize this experience. And yes. you know that's important. And I think that goes for my work in criminal justice and beyond is we need to think about more than just the data. That's just a piece of it. So it is an access, it is an exposure issue. It's a systemic issue. Uh, and, you know, the representation piece that will hopefully get better as we get more, you know, Latinas in these positions and these roles. But I know for me, I didn't think it was possible because I didn't see it. And so I just didn't kind of correlate myself with that because I just didn't even see that represented. And 
you know, um, especially for my field, I've had students come up to me and say like, well, I didn't think about research or even studying policing. And I'm like, I understand that you don't see that represented, but we need your voice and this is why. And it can be intimidating. I know entering criminal justice as a woman of color, intimidating, I get that. But that's more the reason to think about entering that discipline and making those changes and being that voice. So yeah, it's tough, but it can be done. But we're part of that change. So we are part of that change. So I'd like to kind of dive in. I know time is just running and running and I'm like, where is it going? So I would love to just talk about that pipeline issue, Diana, that you talked about. And I feel like it relates directly to your work, Lena. And we talk about, I'm sure you all have heard uh, of the school to prison pipeline, right? And we talk about having access, having opportunity, seeing yourself so that you're able to, you know, reach these amazing achievements. Think about PhD and it's, it's the master's before and if you kind of like go, go in like reverse order, right? So then beforehand, you would have had to have been successful in your bachelor's program, probably done well in your bachelor's program. What, how do you get into a good bachelor's program? We well, have to have done well in high school. So, and then, you know, going back from high school, even like middle school and elementary school and all the things that are happening right now. So if we take it back, right, all the things that are happening right now in our K-12 systems and all the books that, you know, we're hearing are being banned. So there's less and less exposure, critical race theory, which I absolutely adore, is being kind of dragged through the mud. At this point, what are the things that we need to do to help women of color, people of color reach these programs? What do we need to do with the K through 12 level? And in terms of policing in particular, I know there's a lot of talk about SROs, basically essentially police officers being on on campuses and certain kids, oftentimes, unfortunately, kids of color wind up being funneled through that system and through terms of disciplinary tactics in schools and wind up getting pushed right into jails and prisons, et cetera. So what do we need to do? What do we need to change? Are SROs a good thing? What do we need to do to make sure that books that are really inclusive and open are being taught, are being uh, read in classrooms? What do, what do we need to do? So I know it's kind of a broad open-ended question, but what are things that we can do to help? So I'm respectfully not a lifelong educator like Diana, so I want to defer to her expertise on the education component, but um, I will say that I think the first step is to acknowledge that there is a pipeline because perhaps those connections aren't drawn for some folks, but there is in fact those connections that we need to think about. So that in itself, acknowledging that that exists. I think that more broadly speaking, from a criminal justice perspective, we need to re-examine kind of our perspective on zero tolerance policies in schools and what that looks like. What do we mean by zero tolerance and how are we kind of, how is that reflected in practice and punitive outcomes and things like that? So that is the first step. I also think punishment or something that's considered more punitive or potentially could lead to those outcomes. We need to look at alternatives and resources and other things. Granted, there are resource and funding issues that also need to be considered, right, in schools in particular. But what are the alternatives to this punitive response to school activity? I think that the harder part is kind of checking our biases and understanding that disparities exist and being able to recognize that those exist and ask ourselves, what would I do if the student was not a person of color? Would I treat this differently, right? And that's a hard question to ask yourself. I think it's important to ask yourself. And then finally, you know, maybe look at other models that are evidence-based that are more rehabilitative, like restorative justice practices, mm-hmm. focused on healing and kind of things like that. I would say kind of thinking more broadly are practices that I immediately consider um, as far as 
maybe alternatives that are a little bit more conducive to non-punitive kind of maybe corrective practices, but in a positive healing kind of way that kind of deter from going down that pipeline and instead focus on growth and healing would be my recommendation. Diana, I'm so excited to hear your thoughts as well. (laughs) No pressure. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, I think definitely just echoing what um, Carlena just shared in terms of there is a lot that we can lean into, right? A lot of um, restorative justice work, work around culturally responsive, sustaining education practices and policies, et cetera. Like all of these things have been around for a little bit. And we have a lot of evidence that shows about, that talks about the impact that adopting such policies has, particularly as it, particularly with respect to Latinx um, communities and other racially marginalized communities in the United States. So we have a lot that's there already, right? That we can lean into and draw from and expand on, right? We have like New York State adopted the culturally responsive sustaining framework as their state policy. Right. Connecticut just became the first state to pass a law that requires ethnic studies as a high school requirement. Right. And this work has been brewing on the West Coast and in the Southwest for a long time as well. And so the more that we can lean into that and learn from the research and evidence that already exists to gardener support around these topics, I think the better. Right. The education field in particular has a really long history of a lot of these changes coming from the ground, right? There's a long history and tradition of organizing on the part of students, on the part of teachers. And that, like, that's what drove the law in Connecticut to get passed. That's what drove the changes in New York State, right? That's what drove the creation of ethnic studies in the 1960s in California, right? And so what we can do as individuals, right? A lot, if you're a parent, if you're a community member, supporting right? The folks who are trying to do this work at multiple levels of the education system is key because education is a public good, right? We are people who have a stake in this system, in this institution, and we can vote. We can do a lot of things to put people in power. Oh, education, (laughs) (laughs) education, right? Like, in the folks who occupy our education departments, like all of these different spaces, we can influence who's there and push them in terms of what policies and practices they support, right? We can push for like funding initiatives towards these, right? Because these, a lot of these topics are taken up, but then they're not funded well and they're not implemented with fidelity, right? Mm-hmm. All of this requires a long-term investment to actually see the returns that we see in the research and in the evidence base. And so how we can support those things, even if you're like nowhere in the education field, except that you're somebody who sends your kids to school every day or like, you know, you like have an interest as a human being and like stakeholder is to make sure that you're supporting people who are doing this work, even in states. Right now, my main my full time job is I'm a research fellow for a national education nonprofit. Right. And a lot of our work that what I'm doing right now is um, building a framework for equitable um, instruction. And part of that is the weaving of linguistically sustaining practices, culturally responsive, sustaining practices. And in doing this work, right, I'm seeing how this plays out across the country and even in states and spaces where there's a lot of 
contentious like politics around these topics, there are still people trying to do this work. There are still people who want to do this work. And so the more that we as individuals can support the local educators, the policymakers, the people on the board of ed who are actually trying to push these policies forward and think about equitable funding, equitable um, policies and practices at the school level, the better we'll be in the long run. And so oftentimes it seems like this is something that can only live at, you know, it's the people in the room making the policies, whatever. But that's not true in education and historically has not been true. And so more, the more that we can really use our people power here, I think the better off we'll be in the long run. Oh, so, so good. There's so many tidbits that I, I would love to just kind of like, you know, go more in depth in from, from both of you. In particular, Lena, one of the things that you said to that, that resonated with me was your comment about would I treat a student that is not a student of color the same way? And I feel like, again, kind of giving a reference to Twitter here, you know, we're in such a Twitter world at this point and everything is just kind of like the short little, you know, comment here, or, you know, is this going to be the right thing I'm supposed to say in terms of DEI? And that's what I'm going to spit out as opposed to actually like reflecting and being self-aware and thinking to yourself, okay, like what, what is it that, let me take a step back here and like, let me reflect on what are my biases, right? And acknowledging those and then doing something about how do I reframe this in terms of my gut, in terms of my feeling? So I, I just really, I, I applaud that. And I really think that more of us need to do that because I feel like, especially with technology nowadays and how fast moving everything is and, and instant gratification and just politics too. I feel like there's politics everywhere and it makes it so that folks are really afraid to show their true colors. And the reality is we, we're all, we all have our biases and so just taking the time to really reflect by really any situation, not just like this, this situation in school, but, you know, when you're interacting with someone at the grocery store, you know, or when, you know, whatever it is, but it's like, would I be treating this person the same way if they were a man or, you know, if they were gay or if they were not gay or, you know, and having that, that self-awareness and having the willingness to be vulnerable with yourself right? And, you know, acknowledge and, and doing something about your own biases. So just really wanted to applaud that and kind of echo that. And then the other thing that I was thinking about, Diana, that you were talking about was really this bridge between academia and then the policy that happens on the ground. And I feel like a lot of what's happening right now in terms of politics and, and people that are getting voted in, most people are just kind of skimming the surface, right? And we talk about kind of why maybe certain people of color or certain marginalized communities are not a part of, you know, whether it's academia or maybe some of these different sections of society. And a lot of times it's, you know, I literally had a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday. This is a little bit of a tangent, but it's related, but they were like, there are so many people in my community, black, brown community that are not going to vote. They don't even know how to vote. And having been in these higher level positions for certain organizations where I know hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions of dollars are being poured into campaigns to reach people. And still there is this huge gap. So many people just aren't aware, right, of how policies impact them, how even the government system works. I just think it's really, really important that we continue to bridge that gap between academia and policy. And so how we do that is, is, I think, always a constant struggle, right? That's one of the reasons actually why I left academia in particular, because I felt like we were having all these juicy, delicious conversations, you know, in, in my classrooms, in my course rooms, but it was like, it's not going anywhere. But I think we can continue, and that's why I have this podcast, 
but we can continue to have these conversations. We can continue to have the exposure so people can hear these things and they understand. So um, I really appreciate both of you being on this podcast. I think the one thing I really want to get out of this is making sure that one, folks vote. And if you have questions, ask, right? So we are here. And one of the things we're going to talk about at the end of this podcast is how do you find Lena? How do you find Diana? And I'm kind of like volunteering them and they, they haven't volunteered themselves, but ask the questions, you know, how does this work in terms of our government system? How do these policies that that, you know, have been instituted in Connecticut and New York state. How can we make sure that comes to Arizona? How can we make sure that comes to California? Who do I need to vote for? How do I get this research to them? All these things. So anyways, I, I really, really solidly appreciate you both. I know we're going to be running low on time. So the last question, the last substantive question that I wanted to ask you all, because I know you both are phenomenal, outstanding researchers and just people in general, because research is just kind of loaded. But what are your future projects? What are you working on? What can we get excited about that you all are, are moving forward and pushing forward in terms of your careers? Diana, I'll start with you. So I have like these two streams of work. Um, on the one hand is my like past 10 years spent studying like gentrification, segregation in the New York City metro area and beyond. Um, and so a lot of the work that I've done over the past several years, including my dissertation, is focused on these topics. And I am now in the process of actually like getting things out in the world in terms of like reports, in terms of a co-edited book, as well as like articles one thing that I'm really big on um, is public scholarship, right? And so thinking intentionally about how, yes, I can submit these, these research findings to be journal articles, but then they're behind a paywall and people want to charge you $40 just to look at them. And so much more interested in thinking about how I can turn these into briefs, like open access articles, et cetera, on the experiences of these parents in a ways that hopefully they're um, impactful for thinking about place-based policy initiatives in particular in the New York City metro area, both at the school. So those will be at some point coming out. And the other stream of work that I am still I'm engaged in right now is that work related to equitable instruction and thinking about how we rethink the intersections of language and culture um, and create like holistic ways of thinking about instruction in the classroom in my current position. And so I work for a national education nonprofit that does a lot of open source materials for teachers um, related to standards, but more increasingly related to culturally responsive and sustaining education, thinking about racial equity issues and the experiences of racially marginalized and linguistically marginalized students in particular. And so we will continue to push forth that way. And there's um, hopefully that work will be out for practitioner use um, sooner rather than later. And so but those are inside of school and outside of school. <laughs> Um, I think I can't wait to read some of your work. So my yes. question for you is going to be like, email me. <laughs> so excited. Um, and yes, to public and translational research. I love that. I'm also a huge proponent of public criminology. I've been trying to submit more articles to open access journals and, and kind of doing things like that. Um, I think it's critical. I also am a firm believer in uh, presenting your work to communities, whether it be meetings or going to the community or having information accessible in a space that's easy to understand and also easy to interpret and is accessible to anyone who wants to read about it. So that's something I firmly believe in. Um, as far as work goes, again, I could totally nerd out on everything I want to study, but I'll, I won't do that. Um, so 
As far as from a dissertation, I'm working on some projects related to, again, as I said, dispatchers, but I really want to focus on the role of dispatcher in decision-making and discretion, and also equipping dispatchers with tools to kind of better serve the community in terms of understanding the needs, mental health crises, any type of, I guess, cues that dispatchers can use to redirect services and perhaps triage responses more effectively uh, and do kind of other alternative responses. So doing a lot of that work with dispatchers as well. Um, I'm also a big policy person. So I do a lot of policy work in the space of body-worn camera, use of force policy, uh, things like that as well that I'm going to continue to do. I was kind of known for this for better or worse is kind of giving myself a seat at the table for forcing my way in there somehow to talk about, you know, let's, we need to talk about the research on this, how it's impacting this policy. Why is this policy drafted this way? Have you thought about this? Have you read this? You know, et cetera. And I think that needs to happen. And so a big focus on that. Um, I'm also finally looking at um, how to writing some op-eds and other kind of alternative pieces on how to build a practitioner academic relationship so that we can do proper evaluations of, of interventions to understand if they're effective. Are we using resources appropriately? Let's study these so we're doing the right thing for our community and so on. So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, I'm sure 3 a.m. I'll have another idea that I write in my little notebook, but for now, that's where I'm at. <laughs> oh. I love you both so much. You know, I, I literally feel like right now, Lena, when you were talking about that, I'm like, girl, yeah, that's right. They locked the door. Okay, well, I'm going to just get my saw and create another door and I'm going to open it and I'm going to be in that meeting and we're going to talk about what the re- research says about this, right? So that's so good. And I just, I love that. And I, I just really appreciate both of you, like your commitment to not only doing the hard work, but getting it out there. You know, Diana, I, you know, and I'm kind of almost embarrassed to say this, but I've never heard the term linguistically marginalized and it makes so much sense right and again that's where i feel like somehow latinas the latinx population a lot of times get lost in these conversations about race and i feel like the stories and what the latinx population needs to be successful kind of gets lost in there so i mean that was just such a brilliant term and i'm sure you've used it constantly in your research and it's the first time i hear about it today and i think it's brilliant it's so um, i even jotted it down on my phone i was like yeah <laughs> so thank you diana you're teaching everybody us too so anyways really appreciate you both thank you so much i know that folks listening are going to want to hear more about you, follow you. So where can they find you both? Lena, I'll start with you. Oh my goodness. Um, So my email, which I'm happy to provide my academic email, anyone can email me anything and I'm happy to to share. I'm also on Twitter um, at Carlena Orozco. uh, And I try to tweet research and other things that I think is important and any of my work that I, you know, kind of publish or just even community work I do, I try to include there as well. Um, I'm open to anyone reaching out for questions or anything at all. Uh, so yes, I welcome that. Yes, yes. And Lana's like one of the nicest people ever. She's put up with me for years now. So um, <laughs> uh, definitely ask. Yes, Diana, where can they find you? Yes, uh, it's funny because I was just thinking how I have a Twitter that I haven't looked at since I graduated because I just needed to like. 
just turn it off for a second. Um, but I do have a Twitter, um, D Cordova Cobo, which you can find. And right now there's a whole lot of tweets about schooling and gentrification, probably still like there um, from a couple of months ago. But besides that, LinkedIn is probably like the easiest way to message me for sure. And then if you message me on there, I get an email and I'm always happy if people want to connect. I'm always happy to talk research, but really, really happy to talk like want to get a PhD, I'll let you know what my experience was like. I can like at least give you some tips and guidance um, to hopefully just help inform what you're doing next. So LinkedIn as well. I apologize. Yes. Thank you for that. LinkedIn. Yes. <laughs> so good. All right, you two. Well, thank you so much again for being guests on the podcast. Really appreciate you both. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. As many of you know, I'm technically an attorney and forever advocate that does speaking engagements and coaching when not podcasting and being a mama to my amazing daughters. Nothing in my podcasts, however, is ever to be construed as legal advice. These are for educational and enjoyment purposes only. Anywho, if you'd like to follow me in real time or get access to my free five must-have secrets for public speaking, follow me on Instagram at the Latina Advocate Podcast. That's the at symbol, then the Latina Advocate Podcast, no spaces in between. Thanks and have a great day. See you next time.